Newswired. Yo, everybody. What's up? Welcome to Newswired. This is B. I'm joined by my co-host, Free. What's up? We are going to be talking about North Korea tonight. It'll be a little bit of a theme episode. So um, we are going to talk a little... I'll be talking a little bit about Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea. And I'll be giving a brief biography of his. And then Free will be moving into pretty much everything post Kim Il-sung's early life. And he'll be moving into um, the significance of North Korea on the world stage and also modern um, conflicts and North Korea in the modern day. Do you want to add anything to that? On these thematic episodes, basically what we're going to do is we're going to take some issue that's been going on for a long time around the world and we'll continue to do. And we're going to talk about one issue more specifically rather than be talking a whole bunch, a whole bunch of issues at once. Uh, like uh, B just mentioned, tonight's episode is going to be on North Korea, the Kim family, which is currently ruling it. And uh, what we think might happen in the next few years here. So without further ado, uh, B's going to take us away on that. So we come to this character of Kim Il-sung. And now Kim Il-sung is revered in the North Korean country as the great leader. And he is still technically the de facto leader of the nation. And he's in fact the only nation that still has a dead president as the de facto leader. And so most of what we know about Kim Il-sung comes from himself as an autobiography, although some has been garnered through acquaintances that he had as a child. And now he was born in a small village, and it overlooked a mountainous ravine. And you can imagine a young boy growing up in poverty, overlooking a, a big river, roaring river that would take ships all the way to the major cities of Korea. And Kim Il-sung grew up here, and, and you can imagine that a young boy with this desire, and, and as we know him as an adult, would be a ruler. And he sees this river as a metaphor for his rise as he is connected to the world and to Korea. And so the story goes that he had two brothers and his father and grandfather were Presbyterian ministers, which is something I didn't know. And they, I guess, through some accounts, had fought the Japanese during the occupation of Korea. Now, this occurred before World War II, the occupation of Manchuria which would later be called Manchuko by the Japanese. And there was active oppression against the Koreans um, by the Japanese. There was 50,000 people interned and put in detainment camps. And so there was a massive move off the Korean peninsula by many of the Korean people into deeper into Manchuria, which would later be called Manchuko. And so... It is said by the official um, North Korean ministry that his grandfather, his mother, and his father worked against the Japanese very far back into the past, as far back as 1917, although it is generally disputed as to their input. Now, according to the DPR DPRK official story, 
Kim Il-sung was involved from uh, the early 1920s, so from a young teenager, because he was born in 1912. And he fought against the Japanese. He shot down planes and rescued whole villages. And if you would believe the North Korean account, he defeated the whole Japanese army by himself. Now, other accounts of Kim Il-sung's life place him in the Soviet Union in the early 1920s, where he rose to the high and mighty position of major in the Soviet Union army. And through this power and prestige in one of the victors of World War II, Kim Il-sung attained a place for himself as the leader of the state once Korea was rescued after the World War II had pushed the Japanese from the Korean Peninsula. Now, many accounts say that all of Kim Il-sung's life, early life, as well as all official accounts, as well as even his name had been fabricated by the NKVD, which was the Soviet secret police. And many think that Kim Il-sung, his, again, his whole name and, and all the information I just gave to you about his family may have been fabricated by the NKVD and that um, the person we know as Kim Il-sung is somebody completely different. And all of that was um, created as a backstory so that the Soviets could have a puppet in place in Korea. And so at the end of World War II, I will pass it off to Free. So yeah, as B was talking about um, prior to the Second World War, Korea was very much a province of Imperial Japan. Following the Japanese defeat in World War II, uh, Japan or Korea was split up because there were two armies fighting Japan, uh, very much like in, in Germany. There was the Soviet Union and the United States, and they both were active working against Japan, and they both were involved in Korea. Uh, the United Nations got together, and they decided to split the country along the 38th parallel with the uh, north going towards uh, the, Je- the Soviet Union side of things and the south going towards America. Uh, the United Nations mandated that they both have to have elections, to decide who is the leader. The Americans poured a whole bunch of money into a, a political campaign that saw uh, the capitalist parties in the South win the election, whereas in the North, they're like, fuck, this is bullshit, and they didn't have any elections. They didn't have any elections, and uh, they put in a government which was the the Workers' Party of Korea, which was led by Kim Il-sung, and it was the founding party of what would be called the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. In the South, it was the Republic of Korea, and as I mentioned, it was a capitalist government versus a centrally planned uh, communist government in the North. Now, at the time, this at the time because of Japanese occup- occupation, and the North was a very industrious part of Korea in the history leading up until World War II, and as a result, all of the infrastructure for industry was in North Korea. All the bridges, all the mines, all the hydroelectric, everything. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in the South, it was the rice basket, the rice bowl. That was all the agriculture. That's where they is. The, uh, and I would assume the exact no, opposite right. nowadays. You yeah. think you think that would be the opposite, right? No, that's not how it was. The North was the industrious part. It had all the technology. The South was the farming agricultural part of Korea. And when it got split, and the and the workers quote unquote took control of North Korea, they inherited a very rich country. That makes sense because 
for Soviets, it's the industrial workers that rise up. It's not the agrarian yeah. workers. Because that, that's a Chinese concept. Absolutely. Interesting. That yeah, it's the, the industrial workers' capital, and hence they have that hammer on their flag, very much like the Soviet Union. After the end of World War II, uh, the North Korean was the most popular, the populous, industrious country, while the South was kind of lagging behind. Uh, as a result, communism began to spread throughout the peninsula. People in the South were like, you know what? Maybe the North is right. Like they're both claiming that they have legitimate control of the entire uh, peninsula, but the people in the North, the people in the South, are like, you know, maybe these guys have it going on. Maybe that's where we want to be. So ideological communism started to spread south. The U.S. at the time was at the very onset of the Cold War in an ideological war with the Soviet Union, and the way that communism kind of works is it benefits poor people, and ca capitalism benefits rich people. And that's the whole problem is that especially in Asia where there's lots of poor people, that communism ideology really spreads really quick. People start hearing that because they're the poor ones of the world, whereas the capitalist West, they're the rich ones. But they want to preserve the capitalist system. So America sent tons of money into South Korea trying to get people on board with, South, with uh, you know, the capitalist way and not have the North their influence spreading any further. It was very important. It became known what was the domino effect, and it would guide American foreign policy for the next you know, 20 years. Basically, if one country becomes communist, another country is going to become communist, and on and on until every country's communist. And for the rich West, that's like the worst thing ever. And so then there was a counter theory that was called containment. Yeah, so that the was the American. Uh, yeah. Well, the other thing is the common turn was the Soviet Union idea of spreading communism to the worker people of the world, and America was very much stopping that. So this has became, you know, a very first proxy war in the Cold War, in which there would be very many. So it all happened on January. I'm going to say 23rd, but that's probably not right. 1953 or 1950, uh, the Soviet Union supplied the North with weapons and on Joseph Stalin's orders, um, the North invaded the South. June. June 25th, 1950? My uncle actually served in Korean Is War. Is that right? Yep. Sick. Good for him. He's injured. He's in a... Uh, I guess Jeep, I shouldn't say that. His That's Jeep rolled sick. over and I hope he's came okay. back injured. No, he died an alcoholic. All right. Well, this moment of... Sun, this ray of sunshine is yeah. brought oh, to you. Oh, no, he totally died a broken man. Yeah. <laughs> this ray of sunshine As many war veterans you, uh, do. So yeah, my great-grandfather, same way. World War One. Support your veterans. Same, same War, same, same veterans. So on, in, in June 1950, on, on Stalin's orders, this North realized their economic and uh, population advantage, and they invaded. And they invaded and took them quick. And, like, all the way down until... The Bay of Pusan, which is the very southern eastern tip of Korea, the North had won. They'd taken everything out. Uh, that was when America was like, we're going to win at any, any cost. And they sent in their own soldiers to help with uh, the Vietnam or the South uh, Korean army. Uh, General MacArthur was leading the whole thing because he had won in Japan. He was leading for the, the United Nations charge against North Korea or against the the DPRK. And uh, he decided to go on kind of... Uh, he flanked him and attacked at Pyongyang, captured the city really quick, cut them all off, and from one end of the peninsula, you got something? Um, yeah, I was just going to mention Pyongyang. The reason that he attacked there is because it's one of the biggest harbors and the most shallow harbors, and so they were able to actually get all their navy in at that point. And so, if you can imagine that the Korean Peninsula it looks kind of like Florida, right? It's kind of like a, a little hangly dangly. And so, Pyongyang is That's about the scientific name. is about halfway up on the inside 
of the of the peninsula. So it doesn't face open waters of the open uh, sea. It in, instead is is kind of sheltered on the continent against the continent of China or a certain co- country of China. But so it's kind of a safe harbor, and so they chose Pyongyang as um, a great point at which to strike out um, and to relieve the troops that are caught up in the corner. Um, if you can imagine it, Kitty Corner, um, that's where Pusan is, is is down in the in the bottom right corner. And so what they're doing when they're invading from the from the kind of the middle left is to relieve those troops so that they can uh, again land more troops. It was the easiest harbor. Yeah, well, they really had uh, attacked on a logistical problem for the north, which was getting all of the supplies through the shitty agrarian south that had no infrastructure. It was hard, like, you know, getting all that stuff down there. And then it's so hard that you come in, take out the the supply lines, and then that's the end of that. MacArthur then went on a huge march, a a Brady-esque march, if you will, all the way up the peninsula, captured everything on the way. You want a cool story about some Canadian boys? Yeah, always. (laughs) So uh, there's these Canadians and Australians. Now, as Free just mentioned, MacArthur is, is pushing north. Now, there is a certain country that would not tolerate the American aggression onto their borders. And they do not want all these Korean refugees displaced into their country. And that country is China. And China put, I, I can't, I, I'm going to estimate over a million men on the border. And when the Americans and the United Front um, pushed past that certain border, they pushed much farther past what we now see as the DMZ or the um, border that uh, separates North Korea and South Korea. And they pushed almost up to the Chinese border. And um, there's stories about that. There was um, a Canadian regiment up on a hill and um, there was an Australian regiment down in the valley. And you can imagine this this valley. I mean, northern Korea is, is quite mountainous. Lots of, you know, you can imagine it's kind of like the Alberta foothills, sort of. And so these this Canadian regiment, I believe it was the uh, Princess Pats, were up on this, this, this hill, or this ridge, almost. Cue mash music. And the the Australian regiment, they they knew the Chinese were coming. There was fear thick in the air. You can imagine, men sick to their stomachs, some crying, some clearly disturbed from the shell shock, as they had been fighting up until this point. And they knew that the Chinese were coming. And the Australians, well, the Australians were withdrawn because they knew that the valley would be taken. And the order was given that the Canadians would not leave, even in the face of the Chinese. Um, invasion force, they were not to withdraw that position. They would stay until they had all died. And so the Canadians, there's, I listened to a veteran uh, talk about this, and he told a story about how they, they were, you know, as a military position, you know that being on the uh, incline, if you're shooting down, it's an advantage to you. It's a lot easier to um, shoot down than it is up. And the Chinese came in waves and the Canadian regiments shot until the Chinese were climbing over dead bodies. And it was half dead bodies climbing over half dead bodies. And they kept shooting. And I think it lasted, I want to say three full days. 
Wave after wave came. And by the end, they were fighting them with bayonets. And finally, the order was given for the Canadian regiment to withdraw. So basically what happened there, I'll pick it up a little bit, is that the Chinese invaded from the north and this UN force is, that, that's tasked with, you know, kind of restoring order and um, security to the people that we were allied with in the south. And, you know, by and large, the people of the north as well uh, would be included under this kind of prosperity. The, the South Koreans enjoy pretty large GDP. Average citizen is making a lot more and, uh, you know, ha- has a lot more access to the world than the North Koreans do. And so the, the, this UN force meets the Chinese force. And you can imagine as far as you can see over these foothills come pouring millions of these Chinese soldiers. And the Chinese army, you know, as you can imagine, is, is, is one of the largest in the world, uh, especially their, their specific land army. And so they come pouring over these hills and these UN forces are, are caught. They, they did not expect this to happen. And so I think Free will pick it up on that note. So where was I? Oh, yeah. So the UN and the US and the UN, they, they team up. They're bolstering the southern forces and they begin their Brady-like march up the peninsula through Seoul. They conquer Pyongyang and push Kim Il-sung and the northern forces right against the Chinese border. They were getting close and the US government was very, very adamant, don't bomb China. They first had a 50-kilometer-wide uh, berth between the border of China and North Korea, which is the Yuma River, I believe, the Yule River. But as the fighting continued, it got closer and closer, so then it was 20, bo- 20 kilometers, then it was 10, and then it was a few, cl- uh, a few kilometers out. They were getting closer and closer to the border, and the North was closer and closer to defeat. But China, you know, who had recently become a communist state as well, or no, had it even... Was it 1953 they become... Co- no, China is definitely communist by then. Is it? The Long March happens in like 1949. I think 1948, I want to okay. say. And by like 1950, he's fully in power. Okay, well, let's say it's a, a recent communist government in China. They see what's going on south in uh, South Korea and in North Korea and the U.S. really fighting the spread of communism everywhere. Oh, yo, Long March was in 1934 to 1935. When was uh, the, the, the Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan... And Mao Zedong, he had the communist revolution in China. I thought it was 53? 43. 43. Okay, so we're good. Uh, so obviously China had seen what was going on, the way the U.S. was financing the capitalists and uh, was really doing everything they could to fight communism and its spread. They didn't want America and its puppet state in North Korea. And that's the way North Korea sees it, and that's the way China sees it, and that's the way it is. South Korea is I, a puppet state of the I United think, States. I, you know, the way I phrase it, I personally think that uh, China just didn't want the refugees. I don't think China was interested in having this. That's why the North Koreans is like, it's a I shit, think that's what China wants it's a now. State. But like, remember, at, at this that. time, like, it had just happened, basically. I just think they didn't want any refugees. Uh, yeah, well, they don't, that's what they don't want about, now. Like, just like, they, like, I think you know? that they just didn't want America on its borders, and having them there would. Having a, you know a Southern American puppet government right there, right on the side, that's just not what they wanted. So they in, they authorized the the use of their soldiers, unlike Russia, and uh, th- hundreds of thousands, if not a million, Chinese poured over the border. Um, I've uh, I've heard that it was over Korea was was actually Russian and American jets fought. Yeah, their stories. Well, it was mi- Russian military hardware, but. 
Stalin very, very specifically said, uh, "There's no Russian soldiers going." No, and that's because they what the, didn't want to fight. What the weird, that's not that's a fight. The, they one won. of the weird little kind of not conspiracy theory because it's like stories of pilots, but that it's not Russian because Russian pilots, cert, like it was Russian jets. Yeah, it wasn't just like Russian-made MiGs. You know what I mean? It was like jets the Russian, Russian military with you know like with their colors and their pilots like they would have been the only ones to be able to fly that way well um, um, and they defended several so i i mean that's like small stories from pilot it's definitely not part of the official story yeah. because the official story is that it was a cold war and the russians never fought us yeah but there's actually that was the first point and there's several other points that well there um, was i read a, I saw open, a story open um, fights between them that there were sightings of russian jets and there were rumors that there were russian jets cia there. also openly fought the russians during afghanistan Either way, it didn't break out that way because it would have been exactly, bad and and that's why it's kept under wraps because both sides both don't sides want didn't it want it, they and even Russia's like Stalin was smart enough to be like, you know, this is a war we don't want to have. Yeah, they, I mean, they sent in jets, same as in Syria, right? Yeah, you could see that kind of airfare. But air, the air on the Chinese them. side of things, like during the lead up to war and during the early stages of war, uh, there were very much opposing camps in what to do. This is 1950. At the time, the only country in the world that has nuclear weapons is the United States. So they're arguing, why don't we use these weapons that we have to win this war and just win it really, really quick? General MacArthur, obviously a very big proponent of using nuclear weapons. One of his policies and one of his strategies against winning the war in, in Korea was to drop 30 to 50 nuclear weapons along the river that separates North Korea and China to stop the Chinese and make a wall of nuclear uh, fallout that they couldn't advance through. That was his strategy. Truman, who's insane, is some, you know, Truman's not my favorite president, but even he was like, yeah, that's retarded and we're not doing that. Well, you know, those generals, they get out of control, man. They, well, that's what they want to do. They want to bomb. And that's why, that's why the United States has, is able to have such a big military because they have certain, you know, even with the influence that they can have, they do have certain checks and balances. And I think any other country would devolve into a de facto military, you know, dictatorship. It seems to be the case. It was the Yalu River, by the way, if I Yalu. got that wrong earlier. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. They, they, they get to the river and there's a good um, movie on that, Taiga Gi. And it's about, it's a Korean movie and it's, it's about two brothers. And the two brothers become separated the start of the war and they're both really strong one is way stronger of a soldier and he gets taken to the north as a prisoner and the story goes that his brother is actually brainwashed and and it becomes a hero of this of the northern people's republic and they end up fighting each other the the younger brother is the one in the south and he, he tries to find his older brother and finds him on the battlefield several times um, and the older brother is so brainwashed he doesn't even recognize his brother. So bloodthirsty. And it's kind of an interesting concept that, you know, the North and the South were are, are Koreans. You know, they're, they're essentially brothers. Yeah. But so nobody fights worse than brothers. As they say in Thailand, same, same, but different. Same, same, but same, different. Same, same, but different. So um, after the Chinese entered the war, they pushed the UN and the United States way out of North Korea really fast. It, it goes down to a, a pretty bloody stalemate uh, to the point where it, it you know neutralizes along a border which exists today. And it was ironically very much the same border as the 38th parallel that it was originally split along in the first place. Now, since that war... Um, after the war, again, North Korea, the rich one, they were the ones, 
the population, the money, everyone had a better standard of living, everything was so good. But as this was the early stages of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the U.S. poured an unprecedented amount of money into South Korea. They helped to develop their infrastructure, they helped develop their industry, they helped pour, you know, really build it up as a country because they having North Korea be so much more successful than them is really a huge kick in the balls for capitalist America. It makes the system look shitty and not good. So they spent a lot of money really beefing up uh, South Korea and uh, their education. You know, things they should be doing for their own country, they did to South Korea. (laughs) And uh, over time, it became South Korea that eventually overtook the North as the prosperous one. One thing I, you know, the the story of of the Korean War that I I think about, uh, like I'd been to Vietnam recently and that was cool, but you know how the North won Vietnam and that was sweet? Uh, if the South Vietnam had money showered on it like the like South Korea did, do you think they would be as advanced today as South Korea is? The North Koreans, you mean? No, the South the South Vietnamese, if they had won the Vietnam War, do you think that if America would pour the same amount of money and attention to it and Viet- South Vietnam today would be oh, yeah, as sure. rich as South I Korea mean, is? That was the whole theory, right? That they they had seen the problems with Germany in World War One, that they thought that if when Germany was kicked after they'd been beaten... They thought that was the worst way you could deal with the country because then it just turns and it tries to come against you. And so the United States way of dealing with it was you pay a ton of money and you implement all the products and the ways of manufacturing and you implement them in the countries that you just destroyed. And that's what they did in Japan and Germany. And what's leading the world right now? Germany is, is the leader of the world in manufacturing because the United States gave them not only all their secrets, but also all the, a ton of investment into being able to do that. Yeah. Same as the South Koreans, Japanese. Well, South I mean, Korea and West Germany are good comparables because during totally. the, the Soviet Union, the whole split, like the West poured tons of money into West Germany yep. because they couldn't dare to be, they couldn't, like the East could never be the good well, one. You know it, what I mean? I think it was, you know, it was, it was both that. It's both that it was in the Cold War and they were facing Russian aggression. And at the same time, they also wanted to make sure that this country didn't do what it had done before when it acted out of depression, which is what what Japan also, you know, that's why they treated Japan in the same way. They gave tons and tons of funding to Japan, gave tons and tons of funding to South Korea because they because they they thought that, you know, after you defeat a country, after it's been war torn, rather than kick them while they're down, say you owe us money. You give them, yeah. you know, I'm sure, well, I'm sure it came mention, in loans. Like, I'm sure they got loans. Like back. having a, inve- investing in Japan is a pretty good bet. Like, you know what I mean? Like compared to a lot of countries, that's the one you want to have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, amazing that the relationship between Germany and the United States and Japan have la- has lasted this long. I mean, when you think of how deep set of enemies they were and how long that partnership has lasted up until Trump, Trump yeah. is destroying America's relationship with every country in the world. Well, that's one thing when it comes to Japan and uh, the U.S. is they both don't like North Korea, you know, because like Japan is the is the one that's a little bit more. But Japan doesn't have a military. Not they they authorized in their Congress in their Parliament that have they, they done that? Yeah, that they're going to start they beefing it up, it up because of this because of this this North Korea issue. So now that basically covers the original history of, um, of well, it's a very brief covering of North Korean history. Uh, so through that, then it became a, a dictatorship, which became devolved into nepotism and monarchy. Uh, the North Korean government, actually, they have a, a, a founding philosophy. I'm actually going to read a little bit. So I went over to the Democratic People's Republic of, of Korea's website. 
didn't know they had one. They do. And on their website, they really outline, you know, what they're about. So the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is guided by its activities. It guides activities by the philosophy of Jush. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, uh, which was invented by Kim Il-sung. The Jewish idea means, in a nutshell, that the masters of the revolution and reconstruction are the masses of the people and that they are also the motive force of the revolution and construction. The Jewish idea is based on the philosophical principle that man is the master of everything and decides everything. It is the man-centered world outlook and also a political philosophy to materialize the independence of the popular masses, namely a philosophy which elucidates the theoretical basis of, of politics that lead that leads the development of society along the right path. Well, that's not a very complex idea. I mean, that's just Marxism, that there's a material under underpinning of his, history that, that... That's what it's based on, that yeah. That power sure, is yeah. vested within a material reality, and so then the way that you equalize reality is through materialist... Yeah, it says that the government of the DPRK steadfastly maintains Jewish in all realms of the revolution and construction. This obviously seems like really outdated kind of communist literature that nobody really pays attention to anymore. Well, I don't know. I think Marx is still relevant today. I don't think that I would necessarily like say that all aspects should be embraced, but I definitely think that like, I mean, when you look at his, his understanding of um, dialectics, that there is this historical relationship between rich and poor. I mean, you can see that. That's a very good, easy pattern to place on history. So I think that it's not necessarily outdated. Maybe not actualized is what I would say. Yeah. Well, it, goes it, on. it was words rather than actual practice. Yeah. And it goes on. It says the realization of independence in politics, self-sufficiency in the economy and self-reliance in national defense is a principle the government maintains consistently. Again. Yeah. I think you're right. I think this is just things that they say and they're written on the wall, but it doesn't look like it's kind of like America. And that's just sense. Like, like the Republicans are helping. They, and yeah. he's making America great again. Yeah, American America great again. I think so it's a lot, a lot of that. As that went on, it kind of devolved into a dictator or a, a monarchical ruling. It went, it, power got passed to Kim, Kim Jong-il and then on to Kim Jong-un, who is the current pre chairman today. Today, North Korea is, is still ruled by the Kim family and has basically been left behind in the 1950s. They are likely the most reclusive state in the world with a heavily controlled media and are basically a propaganda state. They, it seems that they really maintain themselves on the idea that they're still at war. I guess I should mention that a little bit as well. Is that at the conclusion of the Vietnam or of the Korean War in 1953, they signed an armistice that ended it. But what is important to this armistice is that the war is not over. It's just we're not fighting each other right now. That, uh, there's currently a giant demilitarized zone between the two Koreas, which is actually one of the most heavily militarized borders in the world, um, full of artillery. There, it's an active war zone. They're just not shooting at each other anymore. As a result of all this, the two main enemies to North Korea are Japan and South Korea and the United States. Or I guess the three main enemies. Well, they'd probably say two. Uh, they claim all of Korea, and they see South Korea and the, and the imperialist United States uh, as their sworn enemies. They've recently been developing... Oh, yeah. North Korea also has the fifth largest army in the world. Yeah, right? People, that's, that's crazy. Like They pour all their money into the military because the, part, the whole part of the propaganda is that they're in a war and they're fighting the U.S. and Japan and the imperialists and they're winning. That's the narrative of you know propaganda in North Korea. 
they've been developing their military for a long time and they've been developing nuclear weapons. It's been known for some time that the North possesses nuclear technology. It lightly got from the, either the Soviet Union or China. Uh, now, obviously, nuclear weapons are useless unless you have some, some sort of means of delivery. And the, the North Koreans have been working feverishly over the past few decades to develop a usable ICBM. Uh, over the last few years, the DPRK has tested a variety of missiles. It proves their case capability, the most recent being the Hwasong-14. Excuse my North Korean, it's not very good. The Hwasong-14, which was uh, launched just back in June, I believe. It was really remarkable because it flew for over 40 minutes and reached a height of 2,500 kilometers, which is crazy. The missile then launched, landed in the, in the Sea of Japan. Yeah, they have a long way to go. I think. Well, this is the thing. This is I the think thing about it. Sixty years ago, the Nazis were doing better than that. But this is the thing: is that yeah, it only got nine hundred kilometers from the site and landed in the Sea of Japan. But North Korea knows if they start firing missiles over Japan or over anybody, they're going to be in a big problem. In, in deep trouble. I think like um, Israeli jets have destroyed North Korean facilities before. Sure, they destroy everyone's facilities. Because of their nuclear capabilities. Because North Korea has provided nuclear... Um, to Iran? To Iran, yeah. yeah. So as I was mentioning, uh, the reason that this, Nor this, Korean, this nuclear test has been really interesting is because not at the fact that how far it got from North Korea, which wasn't very far, but the length and height at which it flew, if at a different angle it could reach parts of the United States, including Hawaii anchorage and even us we are now in range of north korea gee thanks kim him or me right i don't know gee thanks kim gee thanks kim times three um so korea has been preparing itself for war with korea south korea japan and the united states for 50 years and that's where this military or this weapons technology is coming from so the question now, what is going to happen with these guys? This is these guys are go they're pushing it, and North Korea is crazy. Well, you know what? I think South Korea is kind of crazy too. Don't they have like the, one of the highest suicide rates in the world? Uh, them or Japan, I think, yeah. And that kind of goes into I don't know. The Americans pumped a ton of money into it, made them really sweet countries, but they have the highest suicide rate in the world. They're actually. I was reading something today. They're trying to invest money into figuring out how to lower their suicide rate because their work culture is so insane. Like they have to work like 18 hours a day, like six days a week. Well, and they're saying it's not super unproductive work. They just have to be there the whole time. Like whether they're doing anything or not, just to show their loyalty. Yeah. On the flip side, North Korea is selling its labor to Eastern European countries that are under like kind of the Russian sphere of influence again. Um, Poland being one of them uh, has started to farm out North Korean workers. So the North Korea will sell them in these like kind of separated blocks uh, and they'll work and do the factory labor in these specific countries. Like it's, it's different countries around the world. I can't name all of them. I think Poland's one of them. And these North Korean workers aren't paid anything, right? The, the, they're told they'll receive their money when they get back to North Korea, but everybody knows. Checks in the mail. Everybody knows that that they're not making the money, and so I guess the North Koreans make like billions off of this. This is like their their way that they make tons of money now is farming out workers, and oh. then and then they just take the money back home. And if the workers say anything or do anything, they kill their families. Also, big industry in North Korea, meth. They are their huge huge meth farm for China. 
and they make it and it keeps their workers going all the time. And because it just needs chemicals and chemical facilities, which, you know, being a nuclear power, they obviously have, they just make a ton of meth, sell it to China, which is like, you know, an, essentially an endless market, make a ton of money off it. Huh. It's pretty smart. That's Break, some breaking bad shit. Yeah, I was going to say breaking <laughs> bad, man. <laughs> yeah. Breaking, ooh. Telegraph, UK, 2016, North Korea feeding North uh, feeding workers crystal meth to speed skyscraper project. Yeah, right? Even in Cambodia, they say 80% of, ca- of bus drivers are on meth. That's crazy. That's crazy. No doubt. Uh, LL in Dubai, they're speeding up their thing by just pushing people off the top. Yeah. Kim Jong-un, Breaking Bad, Secret World of North Korean meth. Breaking Kim. Kim Jong bad. I never knew that. That is a a wild fact. Yeah, right. Good money though, right? It's the inputs are cheap, and you just need chemistry, which isn't hard. If there's no government coming after you, just yeah, they have they have poppy farms that existed in the seventies, and they uh, exported opiate production. Yeah. Major floods destroyed it, and so they switched to uh, something that could be made in the lab. Have you ever seen any of these North Korea uh, propaganda videos on the internet? No, I haven't. So it's made, it's like so basic. It's like, you know, Windows 98, uh, like film, like what's that movie maker game <laughs> where you make a movie? It's like that. And uh, basically it's this propaganda film about how North Korea is like bombing New York and bombing uh America in submission and how they're winning this war and back home they're like yeah boy like we're uh, well I don't know if they're actually like that but the narrative is that they're fighting America in this colossal world war and they're winning and that's the videos that they get crazy I, I'm still just uh, blown away by this meth thing in North Korea yeah right? they make one billion they estimate off that a year that's crazy man one like, billion man and meth is cheap as fuck they're probably selling it like pennies dude, on the ground they say, and they say that it's well revered in North Korea they say oh they give you it. got the North Korea <laughs> that's racist <laughs> sorry to all our Asian listeners <laughs> uh, but they say that DPRK officials we can just cut that after yeah well, maybe. <laughs> well, maybe. yeah we could talk <laughs> in an Asian accent talk uh, in an Asian accent all, all, good, all no. night on do the wild <laughs> <laughs> So the DPRK are feeding uh, themselves full of meth. I guess it's like a uh, at at uh, functions and like big celebrations. They'll give uh, the traditional gift is beef and meth. Yeah, fuck yeah, <laughs> that's a party right there. Right there. Better better meth than being hungry. Dude, I guess. eat a ton of beef and then just like you know, I guess do the meth. <laughs> if you're if man, if you're in North Korea, I'm sure that's like not so bad. It's better than the alternative. Yeah. <laughs> Not being on meth. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, you're sober and you're just starving. Man, can you imagine being sent to a Korean prison camp? And the worst part is that you can get multiple life sentences, but it doesn't count against you. It counts against your family. So you can get a three-generation life sentence, and you can go to prison, and then your kid would also be a prisoner, and then their kids would also be a prisoner. Crazy. Harsh. Yeah, I've heard. I heard somebody. I was listening to the radio the other day, and they're talking about it. And they said something about like seven and eight generation um, uh, imprisonments. And I did. I thought that meant that like. Can you imagine getting they just out of that arrested impri- all their family or whatever? Can you imagine getting out of that punishment? Like, man, I'm a eighth generation prison baby. We're free. Like, what, you know what? Like, what do I do? Guess what? I guess what? I gave the official. What's that? Some beef and some meth. All good. Now I'm out. They pair well together. Beef, beef and meth. On that note, <laughs> I'm I'm starving. I gotta go home and eat some beef or some meth. Uh, some pasta. Mm. I'm gonna do some. You know what would make pasta way better? Meth. 
And beef. <laughs> I don't know about the beef part. <laughs> Ass is no good. What if, what if it was meth-fed beef? Meatballs. What if it was meth-fed beef? Would that be good? <laughs> what about beef-fed meth? And what about beef-fed meth? All right, I guess that's going to wrap up. Uh, is there anything else you want to touch about North Korea? They're crazy, man. Uh, oh, yeah, I guess I'll just uh, end this by saying, you know, this is very much a preliminary kind of history guide and breakdown of what we think is going on. It is the craziest story, and I encourage everybody to do some independent research uh, on North Korea and what's going on. I hope we brought you up a little bit to speed so that, uh, you know, it gives you a little bit of background when you're hearing about North Korea in the news. But if you like it, there's tons of good resources out there, and I definitely recommend that everyone take some time and learn about it because it's true what they say. Truth is stranger than fiction. Try out like some YouTube, man. It's pretty cool. Try it on for size, man. Just try One it size on for fits size. all. That's YouTube. YouTube. Stream it. Stream that shit. Stream the future. Bring it up. <laughs> all right. I think that's it. So from uh, this special North Korean thematic episode of Newswired, I am free. I'm B. Peace out, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bless it up. Jobless. <laughs>